Um, welcome, everybody. And again, for the third time, happy Father's Day to all the pops. And uh, come on, we, you know, it's Father's Day. Fathers, you could do whatever you want on Father's Day, right? And you're here, so we know your faith is serious. We know you're serious about God because you're here. So welcome, fathers. Now we know you really love the Lord. Um, secondly, uh, happy Father's Day to my dad. I love you, pops. Thanks for all the love, my man. Love you, dad. Dad, come on. Um, all right. Well, um, you know, a couple of things before we get into the message today. I want to highlight two things. Number one, it is, uh, I wanted to highlight Juneteenth today. Maybe you don't even know what Juneteenth is, but Juneteenth is a celebration of the freedom of, from slavery uh, for the black community in America. And it goes back to the 1860s and only recently made more of a national holiday. And I just think it's such an important thing for us to celebrate because as followers of Jesus, we are about the freedom that God has come to bring us spiritually, um, relationally, and certainly socially in body, mind, and spirit. So let's just give a round of applause to God for bringing that amazing gift. What a gift from God. Men and women who held to the gospel truth were a part of that um, process. And I want to read something uh, from, uh, from Abraham Lincoln. On June, January 1st, 1863, he said, I never in my life felt more certain that I was doing right than I do in signing this paper. That is the Emancipation Proclamation. And if my name ever goes into history, it will be for this act. And my whole soul is in it. Come on, what a great moment. What a great moment. Thank you, God, for that. And um, the second thing is, is uh, this Wednesday, I don't know if you remember me talking about this, but a couple of weeks ago, but this Wednesday is, uh, Ju uh, on, the, on June 21st, is going to be the Carlsbad Unified School District is hosting a meeting for parents to come and even voice their concerns and their opinions about some of the curriculum and some of the direction the school district is taking. And I've just been encouraging Christians, hey, I want you to feel like just being there and being God's salt and light and bringing your Christian values into that space is a really valuable thing um, for you to do as God's witnesses in our community. So I want to encourage you to be there and be there with the love and the grace and the gentleness of Christ, but also with his truth with you as well. So that's uh, coming up this Wednesday, so keep that in your radar. And I highlight that because we're a church in Carlsbad, so this is going on in our community, and I want to draw your attention to it. So here we are. We are in our series in Revelation. Now, a quick story about Revelation. When the first time I ever taught a study on Revelation, I was a junior at UCSD, and I was launching my first Bible study. I had been rejected my sophomore year because uh, in the application to be a Bible leader, they ask you, what's your biggest fault, area of growth? And I wrote, well, I can be a bit prideful, and I need to grow in humility. And this is what they, they called me. said, we agree with you. We're going to give you another year so you can get back. <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> All right, I guess I was not wrong about that one. Um, but here I am, my junior year, and I'm launching our Bible study on a study on Revelation, which is why they probably made, it, made me wait a year. And 20 freshmen piled into my study from all over the campus. They were so excited. Well, at the same time, some people left the study because they were freaked out about what was going to happen when we opened the book of Revelation, as if by opening the book, peals of thunder were going to tear across the sky and burning sulfur was going to rain down on us. And literally, people left because they were afraid. 
And you know, we don't need to be afraid of the book of Revelation. And that's what I love about the way Abel opened it up last week. And he framed the whole message around the promise of blessing. Look at this verse in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who take it to heart, take to heart what is written because the time is near. Now, certainly we are in those last days, and we are closer to Jesus' return than ever before. Now, the question is this, how do we live in light of that promise with Jesus returning and thinking about him coming back? Because as followers of Jesus, we believe that. We believe that Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. We believe that he will come again. And Christians have believed this for 2,000 years. Now, with Jesus returning, what can we know? What do we think about what he is looking for in our life? What does it mean for us to be faithful followers of Jesus in these last days? What kind of church will Jesus bless? That is why we're studying the seven letters, because in these times, it is more confusing than ever how to walk faithfully with Jesus. Have you felt that at all in your life? Like, what does it really mean to be faithful with all the controversy and all the questions that are circulating about what it means to be a Christian? So I want to go back and start with the context of this letter. It's to the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was this huge city that had a powerful and strong religious culture. They had one of the seven wonders of the world in their city. Let's go to that image. The temple of Artemis or princess, or uh, I'm sorry, the goddess Diana. And here it is. This massive structure, you can just see the little people, I think, right like here. I don't know if you can see that. These little people, look at how small they are. These huge, huge pillars. Impressive, right? Um, seven wonder, seventh, one of the seven wonders of the world. And because of this um, popularity that the city had because of the structure, um, the religion just dominated. This religion dominated the area. And so their civic life was really tied into their temple worship, so that when Christians show up and start leading people to faith in Jesus, guess what happens? Political uproar, political controversy is ignited because there's a drop in the sale of idols. And in the drop in the sale of idols, it was disrupting the local economy. People were freaking out, and there's a riot. There's like an uproar. You can read in Acts chapter 19, and you can see that because Jesus, the, the gospel of Jesus was spreading, it was creating a stir in the community. And it wasn't easy to follow Jesus because the whole civic life of Ephesus was deeply in, intertwined with religious belief. And so there were things that Christians, as people came to faith, were encouraged to not participate in because it went in direct alignment with like worship in, uh, of false gods and idolatry. And so for Christians in Ephesus, the line between church and state was non-existent. And it was like, gosh, if I'm participating in these civic things, these festivals, I'm also participating in these other religions and these, this idol worship. And the challenge for Christians to know how to be faithful to their faith and yet live as God's salt and light in the community was really difficult. Can you relate to that? Just trying to carry your faith into your circle of friends or at work or in your soccer team, right, uh, into a community can be challenging when there's polar opposite views colliding with ours. Now, there's significant pressure to fit in and blend in with the religious culture because it maintains civic 
solidarity and peace. And Christians were uprooting that, not because they were rude and obnoxious, but because in their faith to Jesus Christ, they were no longer worshiping the other gods. And that created tension, all right? And it's a little bit like when you fall in love and you want to get married, you stop all the dating with the other people and that can create a stir, right? It's like, oh my gosh, hey, I'm not going out with you anymore because I'm in love. And friendships and relationships shift because of your allegiance to the true God. Now, the question is, how do we live faithfully to Jesus in our day in the face of our current pressures? What are yours? I just want you to reflect for a minute. What are the pressures that you feel in following Jesus faithfully wherever you're at. It doesn't matter if you're in high school, college, if you're, you know, a young family, parents of young kids, or if you're retired. It doesn't matter what stage of life. We all have those challenges, those moments where, oh, what does it look like for me? Okay, so what are yours? And see if you can bring those tension points to mind, because that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And through these seven letters, we get a glimpse into what Jesus cares about. What is on Jesus's heart? Because we can get confused by what we care about, what others care about, but what does Jesus care about? That's what we're going to look at this morning. The letter to Ephesus shows us what Jesus cares about. And here, let's go to the list. Number one, we learn what he cares about by what he commends in the church of Ephesus, by what he praises about them, what he loves about what they're doing. And I love this letter the way it starts because Jesus starts by telling them the things he loves about what they're doing. And then he gets to the challenge. And that's a good parenting technique. Before you lay in with what needs to be improved in your kid's life, start by affirming by what you love about them. What you see them doing that is so good and admirable. And then he gets to what he's concerned with. Verse 4. This is what I hold against you. And then he calls them to do something. In light of what he commends and what he's concerned with. That's what we're going to do right now. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, as we dive into this, I pray for those of us in this room that are followers of you, that, Lord, in some way you may be asking us to renew our first love with you or with others in some way, the love that we had at first. Give us open ears and open heart, ways in which maybe we've been drifting from that first love with you that Jesus, this morning, you want to renew. For those who have never given their life to you, who don't even know what it is to be filled with your love for them, I pray this morning would open a door for your love to come pouring into their life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start with what Jesus commends. I just love this about God. He's got some hard things to say. Remember, this is Jesus talking, and John is writing down what he hears Jesus saying. And this is classic God. This is how you know God is speaking, because when he has to say hard things to us, it's not condemning, it's not judgmental, it is just embrace, it is filled with this spirit of love and grace, even though there's hard truth in it. He opens up with praise. Verse 2, I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. Jesus begins with praise and affirmation. There was a moment uh, last week where my son had done something I wish he hadn't done, and, um, and I was getting ready to lay into him. You know, it was just something like, man, I've been telling you to put your clothes away, and there's your underwear and your pants and your socks in the living room. You know, the living room is not your closet. And I was getting ready to lay into him. I've told you. 
parents, we all say we'd never say this, but here we are saying it. I told you a thousand times. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it. I didn't do it this time. I stopped. And I said, you know, son, I want you to know, I've been seeing you grow in so many ways. And I just started telling him, man, I love that you've been doing this and this. I've really been seeing how hard you've been trying. But man, I'd really appreciate it if you could just remember to get your clothes and put it away. He was like, ah, you, you bet, dad. So different, such a different dynamic than if you never put your clothes away. You never do what I ask you to do. You're always forgetting. Right there, I'm putting my kid on the defensive. And look at the way Jesus, with all authority and power, comes down with such gentleness, and he starts with what he loves. And he calls out two things, their hard work and their perseverance. Now, this is what he commends in them, and this is going to teach us something that helps us understand what God cares about when he looks at our life and our faithfulness to him. And by hard work, what does Jesus mean? We have to go back to the passage to know. And when we go and we look at verse 2, he starts to unpack the hard work that he's talking about. Look at verse 2. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. Okay, now watch. In verse 6, this is the hard work. Jesus is even more specific when he says this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, here it is. Jesus is commending their, the hard work they're putting into holding on to the truth of God in their life. Okay? Because it's hard work sometimes to hold to God's truth in our life when there are counter forces of influence and pressure on our life to fit in and just go with the flow. Are you with me? It's hard work to sift and discern God's truth from popular ideas in culture. Can you think of an area right now where you're doing that? I remember when I was a new believer, I was like, gosh, is the Bible really God's inspired word? And I wrestled through what some of my non-Christian friends were saying. Nah, dude, bro, the Bible has been transcribed so many times over thousands of years, the original intent of the authors is lost. You don't know what those guys meant when they wrote what they did. And so I was like, whoa, maybe that's true. And I had to sift through that kind of pushback on the idea that the word of God is inspired and in his infallible word, useful for us today, 2,000 years later, to guide us in our life into understanding what pleases God and what will bring us joy and fulfillment in our life according to his wisdom. I had to dig into it. I had to study. I had to actually put some effort into deciding, is that really true or not? Where is that for you? It's hard work to resist the practices that everyone else is going along with. Come on now. Come on. Are there things that other people do who don't follow Jesus that sometimes you kind of wish you could just not be a Christian for a moment and just have good fun and do it with them? Come on. Let's be honest. Huh? Sometimes it happens. I know some of us never go there. Nope, nope, I hate it all. I hate it all, you know. Um, but if we're honest, we probably all have moments where we kind of go secretly, gosh, I wish I could just not be a Christian right now and just dive into that. I remember uh, when I was in high school and I was just in that party life, I was partying, and the thought of just having more joy in studying, having a Bible study, I, you guys, I couldn't even read I couldn't read any books. I barely even got through Terminator, the book, okay? <laughs> Reading a 2,000-year book and finding joy in that? I, no, 
yeah, I think I'll, you know, give me the party. And it was hard to imagine finding joy in God. And I was like, well, maybe I could just have the party life too. But I remember when I started resisting that lifestyle. I told God, if you're better than that part, the party life, I'll follow you. But you've got to be better. <laughs> not one of those just because you should. No, nah, that's not going to work for me, God. I'm not spiritual enough. Come on, you got any of those areas? It's hard. There are things that other people do that we don't do as Christians because we follow Jesus. And those, that makes us, that can make us feel different and stand out, and it can bring uh, pressure with people. It can leave us feeling like, gosh, why do we have to stand out? Why can't I just be like everybody else? It's hard to resist those practices. Listen to what Jesus says here, but this is important. John 8, 31 to 32. Jesus says this right here. Get this. If you hold to my teaching, because he knows there's the real possibility that as we follow Jesus somewhere along the way, we're going to stop holding to his teaching. Because if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. It's not just what you label yourself as. It's not just showing up at church or carrying a Bible around. It's you're holding to my teaching. Then you're my disciple. Then, get this, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And as, as followers of Jesus, we believe that the benefit of reading the scriptures and holding to Jesus' teaching is that we come to know truth. Because there's a lot of sources today that are telling us where we can get truth apart from God. We can get truth simply by how we feel and what feels comfortable for us. Right? Are you with me? Today, there's the idea that whatever feels good or right to you, just do it. That is truth. But you don't have to go far to realize if everyone lived like that, we would be living in chaos, right? Because if everybody's just doing what they want to do, then we get what the Bible is trying to protect us from. And in a culture where everyone's stealing from each other, everyone is taking from one another, everyone is living self-centered lives at the expense of one another, hoarding their resources without regard to those in need. Because see, it's just easier to take care of yourself. It really just is. And so Jesus is saying, hold to my truth. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that's why it's so important in being faithful to Jesus in these days that we hold to God's truth. Now, there are some of us that like all about just, like, no, I just want to be a loving person and just forget the truth. But this is an important corrective for us, that holding to God's truth is essential to knowing how to love others well. Because no one loves more than God. And the truth of God allows us to be conformed to his standard of love. But what does truth set us free from? Okay, so if Jesus' teaching leads us to truth, what will his truth set us free from? Well, what the scriptures teach is God's truth sets us free from sin by helping us know what sin is and what sin is not. It's a little bit like this. Um, it's a little bit like... Um, being able to diagnose a problem that you're having. Like when you have a problem, you don't know what the problem is, you can't fix it. Are you with me? So I had, I, you know, I, I've had this happen in many places in my life, um, but one of them is I had this growth on my ear. And I was like, well, gosh. And I went to the skin doctor, and the doctor had to say, yeah, we're going to do a test on that. And the test came back, this is cancerous. You have cancer on your ear. 
Now, that doctor was not insulting me and going, oh, you cancerous person. It was not an insult or an attack on my character. It was just a diagnosis so that not so she could just terrify me or make money off of me, although certainly she did make money off of me. <laughs> you know, she deserves it, doctor doing her work, but to heal me. And so they had to remove that. And so the Bible diagnoses sin in our life so we can understand why we feel alienated, disconnected from God, why it's hard to trust and believe in God, or why there's brokenness in our relationships, or why we're struggling with anxiety, or why things are broken in the world. That's because we need to understand sin. And by understanding sin, we can be healed. And that's freedom. Freedom from sin, which... Another way of understanding sin is self-centeredness. Because if you remove God from the center of your life, and God is not there, who is? Uh, yes, you, me. Not me as in I'm on your throne, but you are on your throne. Right? And we become self-centered people. And then we live without God. That's freedom from. But freedom for. God's truth leads us into a freedom for a whole new life that is possible. A life in God's love. Loving others as he loves us. And we are just free to begin loving others and to know God in a way that we never could before. And what the Bible teaches is ultimately it's sin in our life that keeps us from really knowing the goodness of God. And trusting in that goodness. All right. But that's the truth part. So he's like, hey, you're working hard to know truth, to hold to the truth, and to root out false teaching. But then he says, but you also have perseverance. You have persevered, verse 3, and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Holding to God's truth is our privilege, right? It's our privilege, and there's blessing, because when you hold to his truth, you get the benefit of walking in relationship with God. The benefits of his wisdom in your life start producing fruit in your life. It starts showing up in ways that people are like, well, gosh, why does that person have that inner strength, that inner stability in their life? Why are they able to forgive like that and not hold grudges? Okay. But there's going to be challenges to, per to holding God's truth. And that's what they're persevering in. There's going to be hardship. People will judge us and make false assumptions about us. I'll give you an example. So when my wife became a Christian, um, she said, just like me, she was like, you know, I'm no longer going to get drunk and do the party life, but I still want to be there with my friends. I want to be a witness to my friends. I just want to be a loving presence to my friends. So she was still going to the parties, but her friends noticed that she was not getting high and drunk with them like before. And now all of a sudden she's different, and she's not joining in the party. And there came a moment where at one of the parties, one of her friends called her out, and said, what are you even doing here? Why do you even bother coming? And that's because she didn't realize how much of her friendship with these people was tied into their drunkenness and getting high together. And when she wasn't participating in it, they felt insecure. And so she was kicked out of the friendship group. Yeah, there's hardships for us sometimes when we take a stand and hold to God's truth, we start to stand out and we don't fit in. And people can make false assumptions about us. They can say you're narrow-minded or you're a bigot or you're prejudiced because we hold certain views about things. And there's hardship in not doing what others do, right? We're just set apart. I'll give you an example. Like when my kids um, 
we're young, we decided when, er uh, when everybody else was getting iPhones in sixth grade, we were not going to give them iPhones. Now, look, if you're a parent and you did that with your kid, don't feel judged. I'm not giving you some commandment from God. I'm just telling you how we raised our kids, all right? And we decided, hey, look, you're a follower of Jesus, and we, don't, we want you to be stronger in God's truth before you're getting inundated with all those social media outlets, right? And you're not, they didn't get an iPhone until they were in high school. And when they got an iPhone in high school, it was an old model, so it wasn't flashy and attractive. And it had no internet, and it had no Instagram, and it had no TikTok, and it had no Snapchat. I know, what good is a phone without all that? It's like, what else do you do? I'm like, well, you can text us, and you can call us. And text your friends. Like, but I was like, look, I want you to be stronger in God's truth and wisdom before you, we, your mind is open to the influence that all those social media platforms are going to pour into your mind and into your spirit. I'm not casting judgment on you as a parent if you've done that, if you've opened that door. Look, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying is there's moments where we as parents, where we as individuals are going to be set apart because of our faith in Jesus where we're going to stand out. And there's going to be things that we don't do that others do because we want to remain faithful to the truth of God in our life. All right, so there's the truth. And he commends them for it. He's like, you've got to hold God's truth. If you lose my truth and everything else falls and you, you're living by just what feels good to you and that's just not going to be good enough. All right, because if I lived by what felt good, I probably would have already like run some people off the road when they cut me off. You know, there have been some road rage moments that I wouldn't be proud of. But the truth of God has prevailed. Now, the second thing is, what is Jesus concerned with? So this is his. This is what he's he's happy about. You're holding my truth. Good job, guys. Then we go to part two. What is his concern? Verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. You know, here it is. The Ephesians have worked so hard to hold God's truth, they've lost the love. They've been working so hard for their faith. They've been standing against the false teachings that somewhere along the way they lost the love. Come on now. We could, that can happen in a lot of areas. Let's start with the most relatable. That can happen with our families. We can happen as parents. We're working so hard every day to, you know, just get that job done and take the kids to all the sports that somewhere along the way we just stop loving our spouse. They become more a coworker in running the family business than your lover, someone that you love, someone that enraptured your heart and your mind and swept you up into that crazy decision to commit your life to that one person for the rest of your life. We lose touch with that. But we can do that with God too. You know, where you're just you're working hard, you're going, you're showing up to things, you're standing against false teaching in the world, but you just you lose touch with the call to be a loving presence. Now that's the thing. Jesus is concerned that we hold on to his love as well as his truth. Because without his love, listen to this church, we become self-righteous, we become hostile, we become obnoxious. And we become darn right Christians that are all about the fear of where society is going. And people just know what we're against, but they don't feel the passion, the heat of God's love in our life for them and for the world. They just know it's what we stand against, not what we stand for. Now, I want to just point you to a scripture. Look at this. 1 Corinthians 13. 
Now, this is so important because if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you felt this way about Christians. You looked around like, what is up with Christians? Man, they make, they just rain on every parade. It's all about what you shouldn't be doing and what you can't say and what you, where you shouldn't be, you know, participating in. And I think sometimes in our witness, we can not communicate and manifest and demonstrate the radical love of God that upturned the Roman Empire of this time. It was the love of the Christians that shook the world. Now look at this. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, I mean, that's something. I mean, come on. If you can move mountains, I can all right. If you can pray for people and see them healed right there, that's powerful. But you do not have love. What does it say? I am. Now, that's a hard thing to say, don't you think? I am nothing. I don't know. I think that speaks to the way we find our identity and our value in our achievements and separating ourselves. No, I'm a Christian. I stand for this. But when we lose love, we lose the core of what sets us apart from the world. Our love that is flows out of the truth of God in us. And if the truth of God is not producing love in our life, it is no longer the truth of God. The truth of God is always authenticated by the fact that it produces radical love in our life. The ability to love people more and more different than us along the course of our life. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship, so there's the hardship word, that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. I mean, those are challenging words, and it shows you how central the call to love is, and which is why Jesus is so concerned about it. Now, a little bit later in chapter 2, Jesus addresses the church as Thyatira. And to them, he goes, you've got the love, but you've given up on my truth. And we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But here, they've got the truth, but they've lost the love. Now, right here, we get to something really important. I'm going to apply this to our life, and it's going to get a little uncomfortable. But that's what Jesus is doing here. He's getting into the, into the, the weeds of how to follow him in a culture where we live, we're called to live apart and separate and different, yet with people. Okay, so here we go. God's love, first, frees us to accept others, to accept all people. Are you with me on that? That the more you are growing in the love of Christ is evidenced by your capacity to be, accept more and more people who are further and further away from God and further away from what you believe and how you live. It is the ability to sit comfortably with someone who does not believe what you believe and to accept them without first having to control or convert or change them. Now, you hear that? Now, I know, I know, I know. Some of us want to clap, but we're a little worried right now. You're thinking, oh, he's talking about accepting. Oh, gosh. He's like just, you know, let it all in. No, no, no. Listen, accepting is Jesus sitting at the table with prostitutes and tax collectors, people who did not believe, who had not yet repented, yet he could sit with them and eat with them, even though other religious people who held truth but lost the love judged him and condemned him and eventually had him crucified because 
of his association with people who were far from God. And they perceived it as him letting go of the truth of God by associating with people. And our culture wants to do that. Political campaigns do that. They judge political candidates by their association. If they associate with those people, then they must believe what they believe and espouse everything that person espouses. Right? You with me? All right. So I think that's an important thing that we remember that the love of God is going to make us uncomfortable because it's going to compel us and nag us and press us to accept people as they are. But that doesn't mean we have to agree with them. God's truth frees us from having to agree with people in order to love them. That's the truth of God. Because God's truth frees us to hold on to God's view of reality even when others view it differently so that we can remain God's salt and light in the world. Now, this is going to be really hard for some of us. Listen, the prevailing view of our culture today is if you're going to love me, you're going to agree with me. None of us likes anyone disagreeing with us. Anyone here love it when someone disagrees with them? You know what I mean? When you're in the conversation, you make your point and you're passionate and it's convincing. And so it goes, I don't know if I agree with that. You know, it's like, ah. I remember one time my kid just came home from college and I said something. He's like, you know, Dad, I don't know if I agree with that. I was like, oh, okay. Mr. College guy thinks he knows more than me. It's humbling. I don't know about you, but I don't know if, I, if any of us naturally likes when people disagree with us. But the truth is, there's a pressure today in culture that if we don't agree with people, then we don't accept them. Or to accept somebody means we have to agree with them and that we have agreed with them. No. These two are separate. We can love people, accept them, while holding to God's truth. And yet you will find moments today where if you do that, some people will be grateful, some will not. And they will be frustrated that you don't agree with them as an expression of love and affirmation. But if you give up God's truth just to agree with people so they feel better, then we are snuffing out the light of God's truth in the world for which God has put us in the world. When salt loses its saltiness, what good is that salt? And so we have to hold to the truth of God in a world that wants us to believe as it believes. And when we lose that distinctiveness, the world has lost the witness and the light that God has put in the world. I want to give you just two quick examples. One example of holding to that truth um, uh, was for me, and I've shared this story before, but I want to share it today because I think it's going to illustrate something that's a controversial issue in our society. So if you've heard it, bear with me. If you haven't, this is for you. Um, God's truth calls us to accept all people. I've gotten into a relationship when I was a staff worker in witnessing to a young guy who was, who was uh, not a believer, and he was queer. He had same-sex attraction, and he was going to all the gay parties. And, well, I wanted to be like Jesus. I'm like, bro, I'm with you. So I want to meet your friends. So I went with him to, to all these, uh, you know, uh, gay parties, and I would hang out with him. And I remember one time we were hanging out, talking, and, you know, uh, it, it was weird. You know, you know, all the, it's all a bunch of dudes. You know, just all dudes. I'm like, wow, not very often you go to parties where it's all dudes, but it's all dudes. And this one guy comes up to me, and he's like, so what's your story? And I tell him who I am, and, you know, I'm a Christian. 
leader at UCSD, but hey, I love this guy, and I wanted to meet his friends. And he's like, oh, bro, you're gay, I know it. And I go, no, bro, I don't think I am. He's like, no, I think you are. And I go, no, bro, I... I just love you, and I love this guy, and I want to meet. I, don't know, I just want to hang with his crew. And he's like, hmm, that's weird. That's different. We had a great time. Um, I go home, and my roommates were like, dude, how could you go to that? Aren't you, like, supporting that by being there? And then he was challenging me. It's so disgusting. I'm like, bro. And there was tension with me and my roommates at that point, a couple of them at least. Um, and that's because I felt this call to be the lo- presence of God's love in that place. And by going, am I saying I agree with everything? Because I did not. I hold to orthodox biblical teaching on human sexuality. But today, if you don't agree that um, in someone's view about human sexuality, then you can be called a bigot or prejudicial. Well, and certainly there has been some of that right? That's why it's confusing, because some Christians have misbehaved and have been judgmental and prejudicial. And it gives the appearance that if you don't agree with it, then you are that way, and that's not true. I remember one time we were doing an outreach. We were partnering with the LGBTQ community, and we were, it was a day where they were kind of a day of recognizing that uh, the hate crimes and the hate and the prejudice against the LGBTQ people. And we were saying, yes, we're with you. We stand against that. As a Christian community, because as Christians, we believe that no one should be treated badly like that. And we were getting, we were, you know, halfway into the day of just representing on campus with flyers and all this. And the president came up to me and said, hey, wait a minute. Do you guys believe that same-sex attraction is unbiblical? And I said, yes, I do. He's like, well, then what are you doing here? You can't do this with us. I go, wait a minute. We believe different things, but we believe in your value and the dignity of who you are as a human being. You should not be mistreated. He's like, no, no, no. You believe it's sin. Therefore, you cannot be a part of this. And we don't want you with us. And see, here it is. Right there. Now, I understand some of the abuses that that community has had to experience and why people get defensive. However, here we are. And I said, so if I don't agree with you, then we can't support you on your basic human dignities? Now, because we didn't agree with them, they, wouldn't, they couldn't feel accepted. And we have to be able to, in those moments, not allow the enemy to heap shame on us and condemnation that because we don't agree, we are unaccepting or unloving towards people. We've got to hold to God's truth and hold to his word. And what's humbling right here, and I think this applies to the church in America, is his core issue is you, your love is not speaking louder than your obsession with truth. Now, isn't that a word for the church today? Are we accepting that Jesus' revolution, which is our history, was known because behind the other side of the hippie problem was a revival waiting to happen? And when the church started opening its doors to the hippies, they were coming in, people were getting saved, and they were bringing their non-Christian friends in. And if you were here at that night when I was interviewing the panel, and Mark Foreman was talking about how people were coming high to church, showing up loaded, just raising their hand, woo, you know, praise Jesus, you know, a little too enthusiastic, right? I'm just joking. And uh, I just think, like, how hard, who, 
people left the church at that point because of, and people were maligning Chuck Smith because of them letting people into the church like this. People just left. Who would we be uncomfortable accepting in this church today? How would you feel? You got a trans person sitting right next to you. Would you feel like you needed to change them or make sure they've repented before you could just embrace them and welcome them and be a friend to them? Because we have trans people here. We do. I sat with Mark with a trans person who was saying, hey, can I seek Jesus here? And he said, absolutely. I thank God for that. We have people here who have same-sex attraction. We have people here who have loved ones and children and family members. I got family members that are, and they are here in this church. And can we accept them without fearing that, oh, we've accepted them, and now that means we agree? No. Because wherever we're at in our spiritual journey, we come here wherever we are. He meets us wherever we're at so that step by step he leads us into his transforming truth and love. Now, that's a tough challenge, I know. Maybe today I've maybe offended people on both sides, and, um, and I hope if anything I said has been hurtful or confusing, you reach out to me. Um, I got a guy right here in this room I'm looking at right now. I'm looking at him, and such a great email. I said, hey, you said this. Can you, what do you mean by that? I don't know if, we, if I understand what you meant. We met, and it was such a great conversation. I grew from it. I think he did. Uh, but I grew a lot. And I hope you, if something here was confusing, you reach out to me. If I get 2,000 emails, it may take a while. <laughs> but um, we're at the end of our time. I want to invite the band to come out. But here's the point. Is, and we're going to see this with all the letters, that Jesus cares that we hold to his truth and his love together, and that's what brings a supernatural distinctiveness of God's people. A supernatural distinctiveness are the people who hold to the truth of God and the radical love of God. And I'll tell you, God's love can be offensive because as I said before, the Pharisees were offended. God's truth can be offensive because people who want to live their life according to their own personal truth will take offense that there's a higher truth than their own truth. But when the people of God allow the Holy Spirit to renew in them faithfulness to his truth and renew a first love in them, faithfulness to love God above all other gods, to love one another, no matter where they're coming from or what they're struggling with or how they're dressed or what they're going through, we're going to love the world because Christ was crucified for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Where does God want to renew your love and restore the place of his truth in your life?